0: We began by looking at the most basic level, that God exists, that God is the absolute one, that God has all power. That's when we got into the necessary attributes of God, which is, if you're going to use the definition of God, there are certain things that are going to be true. And this is where you get omnibenevolent, omniscient, omnipresent, that to be God is to be those things. And this is the fourth one that we're going over tonight, the fourth omni. And it's sometimes left out of the other three because it is sort of in a class on its own. This is God's omnibenevolence, which means God is all good, that God is perfectly good. He has perfect moral integrity. So because God is personal, we talked about that, to describe God's morality is appropriate because he is a person. He has character. And we say it all the time, God is good, but sometimes we don't realize the weight of behind those three little words. And we're going to break this up into two parts. And tonight, we're going to be going over the fact that God is just, because there's just too much here to unpack in one study. So tonight, we're going to look at a a little bit of what it means for God to be good in general. And then we're going to spend the bulk of our time diving into what it means for God to be just. When you speak of God being omniscient, or if you want to get real philosophical, any potential God is being omniscient or omnipresent. People are more or less okay with that. That's uncontroversial. But when you say that God must necessarily be good, this is when you run into opposition from people. Is God all powerful? Sure, of course. Is God self-existent? That makes very good philosophical sense. God is good. Yeah, well, prove it. This is where you start to lose companions. The farther you go into Christian doctrine, you start out and you've got a lot of buddies on your team. Yes, we all believe in God too. But as you narrow it down on who God actually is, you start to lose friends along the way. And this is one of the the exit ramps for a lot of folks, the goodness of God. But it only makes sense for God to be good. If to be God is to be maximally great, remember last week we talked about you pushing all the sliders all the way to the top on all of God's attributes then it only makes sense for his morality to be supreme as well. And if all of creation came from God and that he is the foundation of existence, then by definition he is good. You see why we we put the talk about God being the I am so early in this discussion? Because we keep coming back to it. He is the standard for what is. He is the only one who can be truly good. To be evil, by definition, is to deviate from God's will and God's character. This is why when we use the word ungodly, it's a synonym for wicked. To be ungodly is to be not like God, which is to be evil. God is not, as I've said so many times, the force from Star Wars. Half good, half evil, and he's trying to be as balanced as he can. God is and does only good. 10 times in the old testament the writers will say the lord he is good for his mercy endures forever he is good but as i said people will object to this and there's two main objections here we're going to go over them both quickly one of them attacks god personally and the other one attacks morality itself we're going to start with that second one some people say god cannot be good because there's no such thing as good To speak of God as being good or evil, it's applying a false framework. If you don't believe in morality, obviously you don't believe in a moral God. And that can be approached from a postmodern perspective where you say that right and wrong is just a matter of culture and perspective, or it can come from a naturalist perspective, saying all that there is is matter and energy and atoms bumping into each other, and to apply morality to it is a social construct. I will say it's very difficult to have a conversation with somebody who feels that way because it's very hard to find common ground. But let's look at our definition of God as the self-existent one, that everything that is has come from Him. Remember we said that, that everything in the world either is God or has come from God. He designed all things. Everything works according to His plan and His design. God is in perfect harmony with the world, that is, with Himself. To violate that is called sin. And of course, God's not going to violate himself because that's a nonsensical thing to even talk about. And that is a kind of a clinical way to look at it. Folks will say, well, being good is being in harmony with the world around you. But they forget there's a whole other layer, not really a layer, there's a whole other reality behind what we see, and that's God. And if you're not in harmony with God, you're not going to be in harmony with the world. And the thing is, people will say there's no such thing as morality, but if you push them just a little bit, they're going to admit to some form of morality. Even if you're totally convinced in your mind, intellectually, that there's no such thing as right and wrong, people can't live that way. Once that's understood, it's not very difficult to conceive of a God who perfectly meets the standard of morality. Now, that other objection is that there is a moral standard, but that God does not meet it. That God is not good because he does not measure up to the standard of good. Richard Dawkins is a rather loud proponent of this view. And it can be very distressing to hear some educated Oxford guy talking about how awful God is on TV or wherever. It's easy to play into our modern sensibilities and make God out to be the bad guy, but there's actually a terrible error in logic at the bottom of this. The irony about atheists who condemn religion as being evil is that they have no grounds to believe in evil in the first place. Out of one side of their mouth, they'll be with Lawrence Krauss and say that we are all just stardust spinning through space. And then on the other side, they'll say that the church is a moral failure. You can't have it both ways. If there's no such thing as a moral standard, if we're all just atoms spinning around in space, then your morality is just as good as mine and you have no foundation to stand and say that I'm wrong according to your own worldview. Because this is how my atoms are bouncing together. That's how yours are bouncing together. So you have no basis to stand on. And if there is a moral standard, then by definition, God meets that standard. Walk with me here. This can be kind of tricky to catch, but it's very important. To sit in moral judgment of God is nonsense. And I'm not just saying it's crazy. I'm saying it literally makes no sense. Isaiah 29, 16, surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Or shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? If something God does seems wrong to us, it's best to assume that we don't understand it. Not that God is wrong, since God can only be good. You have to decide, is there no morality or is there no God? You can't have it both ways. You don't get to flip the goalpost depending on the conversation. When you're arguing with a Christian and he's trying to advance arguments for God, you say, there is no God. We're all just atoms bumping together. And then you want to come and say, you people are wrong. Well, I thought we were just atoms bumping together. Well, yeah, but there's, there's some sort of higher morality going on here. Which is it? For example, Richard Dawkins, our loud friend, he refused to debate the Christian apologist William Lane Craig because he had defended the book of Joshua when God sent the children of Israel to wipe out the Canaanites. And he said, I will never give a platform to somebody that believes such, something so terrible. So apparently, Richard Dawkins believes that genocide is wrong, and he would put the Bible story into that category. Why in the world would he believe that? He is a strict, naturalistic evolutionist. He believes in survival of the fittest, that the species that cannot hack it needs to die for the advancement of the planet. If the polar bears can't take the heat, they should get out of the oven, so to speak. Well, why not apply that to human behavior? Why not say if this country can't hack it against this country, then maybe they should get out of the way? Why wouldn't he do that? He would probably be repulsed by that because he's operating under a moral code. Well, the question is, where did that come from? If it's evolved, if you believe you evolved your morality and we all just evolved this, then it's accidental. It could have gone any number of different ways. And now that we're aware of it, we can ignore it. It can only have come from God, but he doesn't believe in God. He believes that we're all decomposing carbon. We have no purpose in life. Then on what basis are you going to say it's wrong for one piece of decomposing carbon to eliminate another decomposing piece of carbon? This is the hilarious thing here, because when you speak about morality and God, you have to speak as if he exists, which should tell you something. If he's right and there is no God, then when the Israelites slaughtered the Canaanites, they did it because they wanted to. There was no divine intervention. It was one human doing something to another human. It was an act of war. But he'll use that passage to say, see, God is not good. But I thought God didn't exist. If God doesn't exist, then that passage has nothing to do with God. It's just telling us what one culture did to justify what they wanted to do. And if you say, well, I'm going to allow that God exists for the sake of the argument. Well, then you've already lost. Because God is good by definition. So that whatever he commands must necessarily be good. God is only good. And if we're going to talk about God, then if God commands something, it is good. And we have to say, well, in our human understanding, we might not get it, but we know his character. So we should trust him. And if you're going to say there is a God and there is a moral standard, but I disagree with it. Well, that's a whole totally different conversation to have. And you're going to lose that argument as well. If there is a divine lawgiver, then he is by definition the source and standard of that law. So to attribute wrongdoing to God is foolishness. Because we measure morality by how we measure up to God. So to say God is immoral, he's like, I'm the yardstick. (laughs) What are you going to say about me? Either an atrocity, as he understands it, we're not going to dive into that topic so much more today, but either they're accidents of evolution and they mean nothing, or there is a real moral standard that could only come from God. No matter how you slice it, we know that God can only be good. There is no other option. And that is, I believe, a philosophically defensible position. You can't really come at that. Other mythologies, other religions, everybody always wants to lump Christianity within other religions. Have you noticed that? Well, what's your God better than this God over here? There is a difference, and I think we all know there's a difference. Other mythologies don't believe that their gods are all good. If you've ever read Ovid, for example, the stories of the Roman gods, it's like, oh, it's disgusting. They're capricious, and they're lascivious, and they're manipulative, and they're lustful. Same thing of Hinduism and their pantheon, although a Hindu would come in and say that there's no such thing as good and evil, so it really doesn't matter what they do. But the the Greco-Roman gods are not even in the same ballpark as the Lord. They say our gods are lesser gods who got rid of the other gods, which were titans, and they had usurped power from Kronos, the great creator, and he had brought the world out of chaos. It's like, you're three layers down. We're talking about this guy up here. It's what Paul said in Acts 17, right? You've got all these gods. I'm here to talk to you about the God that made heaven and earth, not your little petty deities. They said, well, gods, the gods are divine, but they're flawed, so you've got to keep them happy. We're not talking about that sort of God. We're talking about the living God, and God is good all the time. We know that God is good. By definition, he is good. So we're, as I said, dividing this into two parts. Because when you hear the word good, similar to the word faithful, we automatically think of positive things as compassion and kindness, But we need to know this, God is not just nice, he is good. That requires judgment, strength, and even wrath. We're very comfortable with God's love, but his justice can make us uneasy, which is why we're gonna start here, and that's why it's good for us to discuss them separately. We're all familiar with the popular soft-lensed portraits of Jesus. He's usually very skinny, very delicate, always has long hair for some reason, And maybe he's got a lamb cradled in his arms. Is there some truth to those depictions? Yes, absolutely there is. However, I want you to look at the last description of Jesus that we find in the Bible. This is Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. This is the same Jesus that said, I am the good shepherd. So same person. This is him. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. John says, now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. Rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Yikes. That sounds nothing like Jesus kisser of babies, does it? That's more like Jesus the barbarian. He's riding a war horse. He's covered in blood. He's slaughtering entire armies. He's establishing an absolute monarchy over the face of the earth. When's the last time you heard that song on a popular Christian radio station? (laughs) Maybe we should write a few. I know it's funny. This passage in the New Testament is actually referring to an Old Testament passage, which you can turn there if you like, Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Check this out. Who is this, he's painting a picture, so try and get it in your mind. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, the one glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? And then the one answers, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. I love that song, Savior, he can move the mountains. Well, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come." I looked, but there was no one to help. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury. It sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. Well, that's even more graphic than the last one. (laughs) Why are your garments all red? Because I killed a bunch of people and this is their blood. That prophet sees the Lord splattered with blood like he's been treading out the grapes to make wine. It's not his blood. In the book of Revelation, it is his blood. It's the blood of the lamb who was slain. But in the Old Testament, you get the other half of the picture, which is he's been striking down the enemies of the Lord and the blood has gotten all over him. Like that scene from the Patriot, if you remember that. The Lord says that he took matters into his own hands. He says, there was no one there to execute my justice, my anger, my fury, and my vengeance. And because I am mighty to save, I stepped in and did it myself. But you'll never sing that song the same way again. Why would I bother to read those passages at length? Why would I emphasize the ferocity of God? Because every culture has its blind spots. When we go to Nepal, we have to fight against the caste system. It's still baked into the culture and it seeps into the church. In Africa, another place we do ministry sometimes, the pastors have a tendency to hoard the message of the gospel and hoard the teaching of the word because they're used to the witch doctor model where he has all the secrets and mysteries and you need me. And in America, we need to recognize that God is a mighty warrior to be feared, not just a friendly Santa Claus in the sky. You need to let the word strike the fear of God into your heart. Have you ever wondered at the fact that the Bible spends most of the Old Testament teaching God's power, his wrath, and his justice before it really begins to teach the lessons of his love? God's compassion and his love is throughout the whole Bible. But in the timeline of progressive revelation, his justice came first. The Bible says three different times, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end. That's not all of it, but you got to start there. In revealing himself, the Lord thought it was best for us to begin from a place of fear. Now, let's not be so quick to minimize that word fear. Typically, we try to hush it up by rebranding it. Reverence or worship. Those are kind of appropriate, but those are safe words. Fear is not a safe word because God is not a safe God. Oddly enough, when the Bible says fear, it means fear. In Greek, it's the word phobos. That's where we get the word phobia from. When you think of God, perfect in his holiness, furious in his judgment, fear is an entirely appropriate response. God could snuff you out of existence at any moment and you have offended him. That is a fearful thing. (laughs) Someone who does not fear God acts with impunity. Never considering that God is going to judge their life. Remember the thief on the cross mocking Jesus? And the other one says, do you not fear God? Are you not even a little afraid of what's about to happen in about five minutes? You're mocking this man who did nothing wrong? Of course, as believers, we know the wrath of God has been propitiated at the cross. But that does not remove the need, as Paul would write in Philippians 2.12, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is our father, but weren't you a little afraid of your own father? I was a little afraid of my father. I loved my father. But if I'd done something wrong and I heard his footsteps coming down the stairs, there's a little fear in my heart right there. The Holy Spirit was precise when he chose his words for the scripture. So let's not water it down. It's meant to be visceral and evocative. And the reason we fear him is in those two passages we just read. That God is coming to execute vengeance on the earth. Countless times the Bible says that every man will be judged according to his own works. Old and New Testament. And often enough, as weird as that sounds, men and women take comfort in that. Ah, I'm willing to take my chances. I'll let him weigh my good and my bad. And let's see how, how it comes. That That verse from Amos 5.18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. Your sin is a blight on the universe. It's the corruption of creation. And Romans 6, 23 says, the penalty for that sin is death. Because God is perfect in his judgment. And this all comes from God's goodness. Because God is perfectly good, there is no evil in him at all. Because he is righteous, he cannot allow wickedness to go unchecked. Even we, in our fallen state, when you see somebody that's put on trial and they get away with something, it... It makes us angry. Even when we have an impression that somebody might have been given a little extra grace when they didn't deserve it, we get angry and we get mad. And we get to God and we think, well, it's not fair for him to do that. Because we grade on a curve. You ever have a teacher that did that? He grades on a curve, like, okay, just whatever the highest score is, that's going to be an A. So if everybody fails, it's okay. And then there was always that one kid that would get 100% and totally wreck the curve. That's Jesus Christ. He wrecked the curve. God grades us against his own perfection. Well, can't he give us slack? No, that wouldn't be just. That would be corruption for a murderer to stand before the judge and the judge to say, ah, it's fine. Go ahead. That's corruption. That's not justice. He must judge sin. Now, as Westerners, we have a highly developed allergy to judgmentalism. Matthew 7 verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. We take that, we hold it up by itself, ripped out of the context, shoot it up full of steroids and say, this is the controlling verse of Christianity. It's really great. You you read some author who's not a believer and they say, even Christians, the, the morality of Jesus summed up as judge not that you be not judged. It's like, have you read a Bible before ever? Or is that just the verse you've heard quoted the most? It turns into license to do whatever we want. That passage is not teaching against judgment, but hypocrisy. Go read it again. He goes on to describe the proper way to judge somebody. And that proper way is in accordance with God's own judgment. How are we supposed to distinguish between good and evil if we're not allowed to judge? Either way, it would be inappropriate to apply that command to God himself. People get those tattoos, only God can judge me. And then you actually talk to them about it and say, you know what? I don't much like God judging me either. It's like, sorry, buddy. That's the way it works. It's his world. We are cautioned in our judgment because we're not perfect. But here's the thing. God is perfect. Don't judge me because you can't tell my motivation. God can. You don't know if I did it on purpose or if I was ignorant. God knows. You don't know if I had pure motives or underhanded motives. God knows. Psalm 19 verse 9. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. When God visits the earth in judgment, he gets it right every time. That's why God's judgment is a point of fear for us, because pure justice is a fearful thing. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Not only your works, but your motivations too, even your unguarded moments. Matthew 12.36 says, every idle word that men speak, they will give account of in the day of judgment. It was just flipping. It was just harmless. God sees it for what it truly is. And God reacts to that. He reacts to sin. He reacts to our attitudes towards sin deeply and violently. That's the wrath of God. God is angered by our sin. Jeremiah 10.10 says, At his wrath, the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. That should not be surprising. You get angry when you see injustice, don't you? When you see slavery or theft or abuse, aren't you moved to, we'll we'll sanitize it and call it righteous indignation. It's anger. It's wrath. We don't like to talk about the wrath of God. Sometimes writers will try to write the wrath of God out of existence. God, God, it says wrath, but that's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't actually get mad. He just acts in a way that make it seem like he is mad, which I wonder why that's any different in the first place. But that's like academic doublespeak, and there's two reasons for that. Number one, if you're uncomfortable with the Bible describing emotion to God, ascribing emotion to God, then you're going to have to get rid of that. But the Bible describes God as emotional, as wrathful, as joyful, as grieved, as compassionate. Our emotions get into trouble because sin let them off the chain, and now we let them drive the bus. God doesn't do that. You are made in his image. Your emotions are a mirror of his emotions. So not only is God's wrath like yours, I always feel anger first right here under my heart, and then I feel it behind my eyes. Anybody else get that? God's wrath is not only like yours, but it is greater, deeper, and more terrible than yours could ever be. And the second objection to God's wrath is the concept of anger at all. Doesn't Ephesians 4, 26 says not to be angry? no. It says, be angry and do not sin. Anger is real, and it's good when it's well-directed. God's anger is real, and here's the best part. God's anger is inerrant in its application. I get mad about this, and so I blow up over here. God is perfect with his aim when he is angry. And he can back it up with power. Few feelings are as awful as the inability to correct injustice. You ever see something that is so obviously wrong happening and you are powerless to do anything about it? You want to get up and punch something, but like you can't. The Lord does not have that problem. He has the ability to dismember the earth and everyone in it. And when we look at the damage that sin has caused, it's hard to say why he shouldn't. It's his mercy. But we're going to talk about that next week. Well, God isn't very much fun when we consider him this way, but this is how God has revealed himself to us. The Bible begins with a demonstration of his power and creation. Generations of sin and death followed by his judgment on the earth in the flood. The Old Testament in a lot of ways is a long chronicle of his justice and wrath against the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the nation of Israel. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 says God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now that sounds harsh, but believe me, you want God to be like this. We need God to be like this. A God who is not just is not good. But it's not enough for God to know about sin and recognize that it's wrong he must grow angry and react strongly to it. That's only right. If you were to watch somebody beating their kid and bloodying their nose in the store, and look at that and say, that's wrong, and just walk away, what good is that? You'd have an emotional reaction to that. You'd get angry. You'd step in to try to stop it. The kind of God that doesn't do anything is useless. useless. And because he has unlimited power, he has a responsibility to step in and judge those who have corrupted his creation. This is a tough lesson because we've grown accustomed to an indulgent, grandfatherly good guy who exists to grant your wishes and dry your tears. But who does that help? That kind of God would be worthy of our indifference, of our disdain in a way, the way we all treat Santa Claus, quite frankly. You're telling me that God is all-powerful and all-knowing, but He allows people to suffer and struggle anyway and doesn't do a thing about it? No wonder Christianity has been called the religion of the weak. You've heard this, haven't you? You say, well, why would God let this and this and this and this happen if He's all-powerful? And Christians just kind of hem and haw because they have no response to that. But Psalm 75, verse 8 tells us, and this is your answer when people say, how can God let these things happen? This is a promise from your Bible. In the hand of the Lord... There is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Lord says, I've got something for you. It is the Lord's cup of wrath and judgment, and it has been drunk by many a man and many a nation. And the day will come when every wrong will be righted and every wicked deed will be repaid. Now, we live in a society now, you guys, that is obsessed with justice in a lot of ways. This is the image of God crying out within us. So many groups that want justice for this and justice for that. And the Lord is the answer to our cries. And the thing is, if these people were to be able to see the pure, unadulterated justice of God, it would terrify them. Because justice is a tough taskmaster. The Lord can help, though. He forgives the guilt that drives us to try to fix everything. Be careful not to construct a God who's well aware of sin, but is incapable of acting on it. That kind of man is useless, and that kind of deity is even worse. Then how do we answer that question? Well, if God sees all this, why doesn't he do something about it? Here's your answer. He did. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed in Matthew 26, 39, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We just read about that cup in Psalm 75, the cup of the wrath and judgment of God. And Jesus, the son of God, took that cup willingly and drank it even though he had done no wrong. He took the penalty of wrath upon himself. God's justice was violently, unsparingly poured out on his son. Do you want to know what sin deserves? Look at Jesus on the cross. That was the wrath of God poured out on his own son, The horrors that Christ suffered during his passion are the horrors that you and I deserve. The cross is the clearest, most sobering picture we have of the unstoppable justice of God.